somewhere between waking and sleeping. On our journey towards the unfathomable deep, there comes a thin moment where we have one foot in the waking world and the other is in that other world where we relinquish conscious control. Pausing here and straddled between two planets that drive one another like gears, the attentive traveller will notice a narrow door, only wide enough to sidle through. This is the border of sleep where imagination and reality are braided together, a chasm in the crust of consciousness venting the hot pumice of imagery into the irresistible magma of narrative. Welcome to episode 24 of Stories from the Borders of Sleep. It's a weekly podcast of curious tales from bordersofsleep.com, featuring original stories by your host, Seymour Jacklin. You can visit bordersofsleep.com for more information or to leave some feedback. Artwork is by Robin Trainer, and production is by Tim Wiles. And the soundtrack for this week's episode is from The Lost Mode by Annette Bauer. And that's available from magnatune.com. You can also get this podcast on iTunes. So, if you're ready to journey with me, then I shall begin. Fighting Lions by Seymour Jacklin Rome March the 11th, 2010. Jean-Baptiste thought that the air above Amsterdam was filled with doves too high to see but constantly in motion. There are wings everywhere here too, but not in the mind. From the pigeons underfoot to the swallows that parry and dart like dueling musketeers, they're ever in sight, always in motion, as if the land is overlaid with the fluttering waves of the sea. I was alone here, where the routines of a great city had no space for me, and the shoulders of the great buildings had no cause to condescend to this drifter, crawling about in the dust of history. Over the last few days, my brain had taken to singing to itself like a banished child, comforting itself with a back catalogue of thirty years of listening, punching random numbers into a jukebox. I left it alone. I didn't mind that my thoughts had collapsed into a stream of pop songs. I had thought it would be nice to see Rome, but I wasn't in the right mood, and I was pretty sick of humanity. With a box full of old letters and press cuttings in my rucksack, I was trying to trace the steps of my great-grandfather, the statesman, the diplomat, the economist a servant of the new world order that men of his ilk had sought to forge in the wake of the First World War. Geneva had rarely been something, almost a homecoming. Then I crossed the Balkans, and that was when I started to get sick. Sick of what I had come to identify as the clinging stench of tyranny. It was a breath of fear that clung to the hatefully daubed walls of burned farmsteads and whispered over the minefields in Bosnia and my sense of it had dogged me all the way to Rome. Here, though, it was older and thicker and stained into the stones. Why am I telling you this? Well, I suppose that's how I came to be kicking around outside the Colosseum with a bit of Albert Camus and quite a lot of Bob Dylan going on in my head. The old Roman circus was smaller than I'd expected it to be. For something that had always been so epically portrayed to my imagination, this ruin was somehow disappointing. 
I tried to feel something other than gloom, but the blood seemed to be moaning at me from under the asphalt, and the prohibitive signs and fences gave me a resentable sense of being herded. I didn't really feel like going inside, but squatted down to change the lens on my camera with the intention of then finding some unexplored angle to photograph. The gushing sound of traffic and the shuffle of tourists' feet faded from my consciousness as I locked into the familiar dexterity of swapping lenses. I often think these rehearsed invocations of muscle memory are their own kind of drug, and I would often fiddle with the mechanisms of my camera as a way of calming myself down. In a few minutes I'd probably be switching back to the wide angle for some shot or other. Then I stood up again, and tried to let myself come present to the place and time once again, but I never quite made it. Perhaps I stood up too quickly and fainted. Maybe I never stood up, but somehow fell asleep there on the pavement. Maybe I was hit by a car or something. I don't know what happened, but I could hear the car horns and the pigeons. But the horizon seemed to be skidding sideways and another sound was roaring in my ears until it drowned out every other. It was the shouting of an innumerable throng of human throats. At first I thought that I'd somehow got caught up in a film set, until I looked and saw that my own clothes were hanging off me in folds of dirty grey cloth, and instead of my camera I was clutching a leather purse of some sort with something round and heavy and metallic in it. I was surrounded by Romans, yes, of the ancient variety, straight out of Ben-Hur, but gritty and sweaty and jostling and spitting guttural Latin that nonetheless made perfect sense to me. Get back! Get back! He's coming! Can you see him? No! Move out of the way! The roar of voices was becoming a rhythmic chant as I found myself being herded back. The press of bodies was too thick for me to turn around, and the smell, that ancient air, was catching in my chest. The chant was taken up around me. Caesar! Caesar! A cohort of soldiers came first, the crowd falling back in front of them. They were sauntering along in a loose rectangle, but still keeping time with their feet. Their faces were every colour from fair Gallic to swarthy Mediterranean. Their armour was dull and scratched, and their legs and arms were like trunks of scarred oak. The keenest delight was in their faces as they took in the adoration of the people, basking in the reflected glory of their general who followed them in a chariot. When I saw him, I was again disappointed by how small he was. Yet, apart from his stature, history had borne a fairly accurate portrayal of his cheeks and his nose. My imagination also had to make a quick adjustment to his age, too. His skin was clear and youthful, shining with oil and hardly weathered. But right there, in his face, the immovable point of reference in all that was going on around me, there was the concentration of the maddening odour that had haunted me from the Balkans. It has been said that the dividing line between good and evil runs straight through the human heart, and I felt right there that whatever separated the two in me seemed to collapse. It was a drunken sensation. Caesar! I chanted. Caesar! Caesar! Somehow that little man became a god to me in spite of myself. 
One look was enough to bind me with those around me who would have put themselves under the wheels of his chariot if it would make his way any smoother. What could I do? I must warn him. I must speak to him. If, if they kill me, I must try. In my madness, I broke towards the chariot. The flat of a sword winded me right across the chest and I fell face down on the grit. Caesar! I shouted through broken lips. He had noticed me. He was looking straight at me, the chariot processing up alongside me. A soldier had me by the shoulder and was dragging me out of the way. Caesar! I shouted. Beware! Beware the Ides of March! I know he heard me because his eyes didn't leave my face until he had passed. Please! I called after him. Beware the Ides of March! Several hands had taken me from the soldier and pulled me back into the crowd. I was still not back on my feet and was badly grazed on my legs. What did he say? asked a woman. Something about the Ides of March, said another. Don't listen. It's just another soothsayer. I knelt forward onto my hands and knees to try and steady myself and stand up again. Then I saw the black tarmac underneath me, and a small crowd of concerned onlookers was gathering around this bewildered-looking tourist who appeared to have collapsed on the pavement. Penzo che e ubriaco, someone said. I think he's drunk. <laughs>